Emery was going to play any last song, what song would you want to hear? Alright, let's do Wall. Josh, can we do Walls or? Yeah. Okay. Alright, Dave's going to give y'all a two count. One, two. Can y'all help us scream while you're listening? Alright, let's do it, Dave. Welcome to the Prophetic Imagination Station podcast. My name is Crispin Mayfield, and I'm a therapist. I'm D.L. Mayfield, a writer and neighbor. And together we discuss evangelical artifacts from the 80s and 90s. This is season six, and we're calling it Shane Core Records. This episode, we're talking about a band called Emery, and they aren't really hardcore at all, but... They are the most hardcore band that a lot of people in the realm of Tooth & Nail Records listen to. I remember hearing rumors about Emery even before their first album came out. They had two vocalists and six members and would routinely trade instruments between themselves. They were packed full of energy, and yet their songs were complex and beautiful. I never thought that you could say these words. Is this really happening? I emailed Brandy Miller, a friend of mine and host of the Reclaiming My Theology podcast, to ask her if she was up for an interview this season. I was asking her as a theologian, so I was really excited when she wrote back and told me that she was a huge Emory fan back in the day. So we got to talk about Emory and also how theologies of sin in the U.S. have upheld power structures. But before we get going, I want to take a moment to say that we spend some time in this interview talking about the ways the evangelical church has really hurt people in the LGBTQ plus community, many times in ways that are deceptive and confusing and ultimately feel like a betrayal. It's laughable at points how badly this has been done, but we also want to acknowledge how harmful in literal ways these theologies and approaches have been. One thing I appreciate about Brandy is her commitment to intersectionality, so we end up talking about racism, homophobia, misogyny, as well as nods to abuse in the church. And this all relates back to the ways we've talked about sin in the church. We talked about this song called Listening to Freddie Mercury from Emery's second album. Every once in a while, I think I'm lying. And our conversation ended up centering around some of the lyrics towards the end of the song. It goes, we are all the same people with sinning hearts that make us equal. I was so excited when you emailed me back that you said that you were an Emery stan. Yes. <laughs> like, what? how old were you when Emery was uh, important to you? 
Well, I mean, I was probably like 14. Okay. Because I think that the question probably came out in like 2006, 2005, mm-hmm. somewhere in I there. I think 2005. And, yeah. And so it was the same year that I had gone to a Vans Warped Tour for the first time, oh. which is going to date me in some way. <laughs> and it was the first year that My Chemical Romance and Fallout Boy had had like big things. And I felt like such a sinner going to a Warped Tour when really I'd been listening to a lot of like Under Oath. Even like as I lay dying a little bit fit, some of that is later on and Emery. And so, yeah, it was probably around then. And the question, it's probably still my Desert Island album. Mm -hmm. I think it's the most listenable album that I've ever heard straight through because of the transitions in it. Mm. And you can't do it without a CD. I don't know if if this interacted with your faith in any way. I had to hunt for like non-breakup songs because that's what. (laughs) Oh my God, there's so many. Mostly what they were. Yeah, I think that for me, what it was was that my, I came into Emory about the same time I came into faith. And so my sister had been dating a Baptist pastor's son. We were non religious. And so immediately we thought I was going to hell. And so I started going to church at this Baptist community. And there were a couple guys in that community who listened to this Christian metal and Christian hardcore. And I had liked some sorts of like pop punk or alternative post-hardcore kind of music. But these guys seemed really cool and they were like all in the church band or in the worship band. And so like the drummer was a drummer at church on Sundays. And then he played these like hardcore shows at night and these like little coffee shops that got cleared out for, for hardcore dancing. And so I just thought that they were so cool. And so I shifted away from two left don't make a right, but three do reliant K kind of stuff to listening to Emery. And I was a band kid. And so melodically the stuff that happens in the week's end and the question were things that were really musically interesting to me. And so there was some mm-hmm. like popularity stuff that I was kind of engaging with. There was some actual musicality to it. And then I just think that there was some having an outlet, having something that I could just listen to loudly. And I don't think I knew my feelings then, but it gave me something where I felt like I could just be. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Going from that like three chords pop punk to like something more complex. And that's what they're kind of known for. They had like six members and would have these like intricate melodies and harmonies. And they would like switch up like instruments halfway through the set sometimes. And yeah, I I think of them as like the Christian Coheed and Cambria. Yeah, definitely. Would you say Emery was your favorite? Like you mentioned like Under Oath and some other bands. Yeah, it was. And I don't know if it was because – because I haven't actually followed a lot of their stuff post-2011, so it's been a minute. Mm -hmm. But I think that specifically the album The Question, when I realized that The Question was actually a question that that aligned with all of these track titles, I was like, oh, these guys are smart and they're talented. And so something about that intersection of like the intellectual and this kind of musicality that I cared about made them my favorite by far and it was less explicitly christian and so i think that for someone who was like insecure about what it meant to be a person of faith in public space emory felt a little more disarming than mxpx or something where it was a little Uh just a lot and so i think yeah especially because i came from ska stuff like where five iron frenzies out here just singing about jesus for fun and then there's something like mm-hmm. Emery that feels like it's a little more nuanced in how they're talking about things. It just felt like a different kind of world to me. Yeah, no, that makes sense. So, yeah, and that was that was kind of like the gateway with like Five Iron Frenzy. Yeah. There's a lot of people. Of course, of course it is. 
Speaking of five iron, so I, I'm I'm gonna wrap this together. So I wanted to talk to you about this song called uh, "Listening to Freddie Mercury" from the Question by Emery. Really dived in intensely, but I'm assuming that this has at least some nod to like the like homosexuality and the church's stance on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, which reminds me of uh, this Brave St. Saturn song. Do you know who Brave St. Saturn is? I do, I do know who Brave St. Saturn is. If you're unfamiliar, Brave St. Saturn was a side project by the lead singer of Five Iron Frenzy, Reese Roper. So I was in the subculture, like fully uh-huh, in it. Oh, <laughs> yes. It was like darker. It was mostly him like talking about like his breakup and also like faith crisis that sort of like coincided. But he has this song called Under Bridges. Yesterday while walking beneath an overpass, I saw the figure of Jesus. Standing barefoot on broken glass. Which is like, in a lot of ways, a really powerful song. But if they're like crescendo, it's like talking about how God is the God of all these marginalized groups, basically. Mm -hmm. But he says like, and it just like builds and it's like of the drunkards, the prostitutes, the rapists and the gays. As though that's like the like worst thing ever. It so. just tells on itself a little bit. It just it just tells on itself. Exactly. A yeah. Okay, I had to interrupt the interview and add a quick note here because it wasn't until afterward that I realized that Reese Roper had also written a song about Freddie Mercury, and it's the only song I can think of in which a Christian singer takes ownership of his own past homophobia. He admits the terrible things he said about Freddie Mercury. When Roper was in eighth grade, he said Freddie Mercury was a queer and had it coming when he died of AIDS that year. What I find most striking in the song is this one part where he talks about how he turned his back on Freddie Mercury with his veins choked thick with spite. Just that picture, it really captures for me the vitriol and hatred that is present in homophobia in the church. And then he ends the song singing, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, over and over. I'm not saying he should get a cookie, but I am saying that I can't think of another Christian song that's been so explicit about owning their own homophobia. And it also ties together since we're talking about a song called Listening to Freddie Mercury. Anyway, back to Emery.
And this feels kind of similar in that way. Um, you know, this came out in 2005 where, yeah, a lot of uh, churches and Christians are trying to figure out what's it mean to be like welcoming and accepting. And by saying like, well, your sin is like the same as like our sin from an affirming perspective where I'm at now, like that, I don't think that is very helpful. <laughs> but they were, you know, they're... I don't know. I'm not going to, I was going to like excuse it, but you, I, I think the way that you said it is great. The music tells on itself. It's, it definitely shows some of the issues that were going on during that time. And it feels like you can tell the subculture that they were in by the things that they describe. Cause there's this line or this, like the outro in listening to Freddie Mercury is so strange to me and hilarious. And I think I felt like it really resonated before when I was trying to be like a non-judgmental Christian. Yeah. And it just uses all these white people names like Gary and Sarah and Derek and Aaron and Jessica and Joey. And it's like Joey stopped praying and Sarah's stealing money from her parents and Aaron's lying to this guy and Megan's out here being lied to and Jessica gossips and someone's a slut. Like Gary's getting drunk to forget Sarah. Sarah's stealing money from her parents. Aaron's lying straight to John about Megan and the things that went on. Jessica's a gossip. Laura's a slut. And then, he, then the, like, the line is, it's all, it's all the same thing. The, he says it's all the same thing. Right, yeah. Oh, you're telling me something theological by wrapping up that line of reasoning and the way that, that was structured with that line. Mm -hmm. Right, yeah. I imagine these are all the people that are at um, Warp Tour, uh, by the way. <laughs> Does that fit? I think probably. <laughs> this is just like describing all the drama that's going on, like <laughs> at Warp yes. Tour. Yes. What do you think is the theological statement that's being made there? Well, I think the the song – or at least when the outro starts with this line, uh, somehow someone's more equal than others. Mm -hmm. And so it's like saying like, we elevate these certain sins over others, but everything's actually the same. Like every sin has the same. What I think they mean theologically is that every sin has the same consequence of like separating us from God or like of causing some kind of pain and destruction. But I think that it does very little help. It doesn't, it doesn't, I don't think it helps anything. Hmm. Um, when it does that, because it doesn't take into account consequences, it just theologizes things into abstraction to be all, yeah, abstractly sin without actually saying anything about the consequences of the things that people are doing. Mm -hmm. Because even in that list, I'm like, okay, like I have a far less of an issue with Laura being a slut slash I have no issue rather than like someone lying to their friends all the time mm -hmm. or like spend someone spending their money gambling right mm -hmm. or and Derek call, like, hits Bridget like that's problematic yes and that's not the same like Derek hitting Bridget is not the same as Joey not praying anymore and so I think the theology that says this is all the same has been used really harmfully in Christian spaces for as long as I've been in the church and this song reflects that theology mm-hmm I think what we do is we erase the entirety of the Hebrew scriptures and the ways that Jesus interacts with things for these single lines out of 
Pauline texts that are just like, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Mm-hmm. And as though the glory of God is the only thing that we need to be thinking about as we engage with others. And so I think that for me, a better theological position would be one that engages with accountability. And I think that a lot of us don't learn responsibility in any part of our lives because we believe this kind of all sin is sin, so consequences shouldn't be engaged with because Jesus forgives all of my sins, so I need to forgive others and not hold them accountable. Mm-hmm. But I think that scripture actually has lots of precedent for accountability structures that bring healing in life and that renew and restore the things that have been broken through the things that we do in our interpersonal relationships. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the format that we've been given often is, well, whatever the sin it is, it was paid on the cross, so it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. And you're talking about like, there are things that uh, can, that need to be done in order for healing to happen. Well, and I think what's challenging about it is that I think it's easy for me as a person who's a little bit post-evangelical and that kind of posture in theology is far, far less popular now than it was. However, I watched during the Trump administration this play out a lot among white evangelicals where Donald Trump would do something horrific and they would be like, hey, that's horrific, but he's a baby Christian. Mm-hmm. Or like, we've all sinned and all, we all fall short of the glory of God. Or like, we all make mistakes. And these are the same people that have criminalized people's bodies over and over again, the double standard of who gets to be a sinner and who gets to be, who gets to fall short of the glory of God is not equal in those spaces. And I think we saw that play out in substantial ways during the Trump administration. So this statement, like all sin is sin, is supposed to like level the ground and somehow like actually like does the opposite by not paying attention to power structures that exist. Yes. In the, like, I think even if we use the presidential piece into a metaphor or to a learning moment, Obama <laughs> was like the most upstanding family man who acted very Christian in public space. And I just remember evangelicals being like, that man is the devil. He, God is going to judge him. God's going to judge the United States because of him, because he's pro Roe v. Wade. He needs to be removed. He's going to be, you know, all of this stuff. And then Trump comes into office and everyone's like, I mean, he's a sinner. We're all growing. We're all figuring it out. And I was like, oh, even the discrepancy between a black person with a Muslim sounding name and a wealthy white businessman tells me a lot about the unequal standard of this sin is sin business that we espouse. And I think the intention in a song like listening to Freddie Mercury, the intention is to be like, hey, all you hypocritical mm-hmm. Christian teenagers and young adults, like, stop being so fucking judgy. Like, stop doing that. Like, you all are doing your own thing. Knock it off. And I think that that, that message of non-judgment comes through. But I think the conflation of non-judgment and sin and equality slash equity in sin has that negative consequence that we're talking about. I wanted to take a minute to tell you about a recent Patreon episode we recorded. We talked about four different movies that basically centered on Christian youth that we've seen recently, and it naturally led us into telling our own stories of youth group experiences. So I went on a mission trip to Montana, of course. Kristen, I have to ask you a question. What? Do you mean you went to, like, an indigenous reservation in Montana? No, no. Oh, no. oh. we just to... white people, Montana. Yes, I mean that's better. Yeah, so we went to, but yeah. also funnier, right? So we go to Montana. This okay. a couple of small towns in Montana. 
But in order to prepare for that, like, I had to do this whole, like, workbook. So I had to witness to someone. Okay. But I was, like, at my grandma's house in the middle of nowhere, but my aunt was there for the weekend, and she's a lesbian. You can hear more about my evangelism exercise and also what happened when I had a crush on a girl in middle school and hoped to win her heart by showing up at her doorstep with a warm bucket of water claiming God had told me to wash her feet. In my defense, I was pretty sure that God told me to do it. You can become a Patreon for $1.50 a month, $4 a month, or $8 a month. Just follow the link in the show notes. If you remember from last episode, I talked with Danielle Schroyer about how harmful it is when we feel like sin is the base of our identity. And it turns out that has left us without an actually helpful way of dealing with sin in our own lives and our communities. So starting with this idea of if we're starting with all that matters is that Jesus paid the price Mm -hmm. and nothing after that matters. Yet, if we actually want healed communities, it's not like the sin or the consequences just go away. How can that inhibit healing in a community? When we don't hold people accountable for the things that they do, we enable the same kind of abuse and harm to happen and then further embed it into systems that we exist in. I also think that if we don't hold people accountable, we actually don't help people build relationships. And for me, I'm realizing the limitations of my own belief in restorative justice when I look at people who are being prosecuted for crimes that I think are really horrible. And I'm like, I don't believe in prison, but I wouldn't be mad if they were in it. (laughs) And so I'm like, oh, there's actually something that I need to learn about what it means to be a restored person and to see other people restored. I think that restorative justice for me is how we become more human by assuming it's the Brian Stevenson quote, like no one is the worst thing that they've ever done. That was a paraphrase, but Mm. close enough. Mm -hmm. So when you find yourself thinking like some part of me is okay with this person languishing in prison, even though I don't believe in prison, uh, which is a familiar feeling. Um, <laughs> you're saying that that impacts you on a spiritual level. Yeah, because if the reality is that God is trying to do this shalom thing where everything is in right relationship with one another and that everyone and every being, everything can coexist and thrive, then my participation in or my comfort with someone else being dehumanized tells me that I'm outside of that vision that I so heavily espouse in public space. And you mentioned shalom, which is this idea of like restoring things. If we're saying, well, sin is just sin, there's nothing we can do about it. In what ways does that make it hard for us to partner with God in terms of working or stepping into shalom? We might say sin is sin, but then we're also adopting and giving people and we are being given a a theology of sin management where, yeah, like all sin is sin, but like if you mess up, that's really, really bad. And so I think Mm. that there's some cognitive dissonance that makes this conversation challenging to have because we are trying to not have sex and not do drugs and not gossip. And we're trying to meditate on the word. So it takes all the fleshiness out of us. Mm-hmm. And, and that kind of striving is a way that I think we attempt to be loved and accepted. And in a shalom experience, we should not have to thrive to be loved and accepted. We just are because that is what it means to be in shalom. And so one of the things that I've been considering lately is the concept of jubilee 
And it is that God assumes people are going to exploit, are going to use violence, are going to accumulate wealth, and that there are opportunities to redistribute in such a way that brings people back into the community who are lost, that pulls people who have exploited back in a restorative way by saying, hey, you actually don't get to do that to other people. And here, I'm going to give you another try. And so I think that if God every every 50 years is willing to say, hey, we're going to, we're going to do something about the nonsense so that we can get this right and so that you know the kind of relationships you should be in, then I think that that should be a familiar practice within our local and individual communities. Because if that is the kingdom of God or if that is the way of Jesus in the world, then we're not going to be ready for it when it comes if we aren't doing restorative work. Wow. That just really struck me. It really turned Jubilee on its head in a way, because what you just pointed to is that the fact that those who are exploiting others, like that's not good for them either. And it brings them back into a healthier relationship, which they've left. And I think it's been really evident to me in conversations since uh, Joe Biden has been the president, as we've been talking about student loan debt forgiveness. And I'm watching a lot of Christians being like, yeah, forgive everybody their sins, but not of their money. But actually what this is, is really a shalom thing. It's saying some of us have been exploited by a system. And there's a way that in redistributing resources that we pay into as a community, our taxes, that we could actually create right relationship to our economy and to each other by eliminating that. I'm just seeing this like this need for Jubilee and this need for a different Shalom narrative playing out in real time in a really upsetting way. Mm-hmm. It really brings into relief the the tension between like, we're all sinners, we're all the same. <laughs> and then the meritocracy of like, but like I made these decisions and you made those decisions. And so yes. I deserve this and you don't deserve this. But really what I, I feel like Emory is trying to get away from um, and a lot of churches have wanted to get away from is this like shaming, like you're out because you you made this mistake. And then it follows into like, we're all sinners here. We accept people. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. But it seems like such a binary, like either we can kick people out of community or we can pretend like it didn't happen. And we don't have a third way that actually like moves towards healing. Well, and I think that that is true because we don't have models of what could look different. And so I think I just wonder if the church itself as a system models the need to cover up and to protect and to spiritualize away and to never actually engage with the real issues that are happening, what that takes from us who do cause harm to ourselves and to others and to our relationship with the divine, because we don't have a model of what it actually looks like to acknowledge ourselves, to acknowledge others, and then to make amends. And because the church doesn't do that, unless it is I think the only place I see this happening is when something happens publicly that is embarrassing or shameful mm-hmm. that the church then says, okay, we have to we have to engage with it publicly because it happened publicly. But other than that, I think it's always done either not at all or in private space that doesn't allow us to actually learn from leaders who say that they believe so heavily in accountability. Mm-hmm. So thinking about this idea of like where we're just all sinners at the foot of the cross, uh, where the ground is level, thinking systemically, thinking nationally and thinking specifically about race in the U.S., I wonder um, in what ways you would find that problematic. Well, I think the ground is only equal insofar as you adhere to white supremacy in Western Christianity. And so I think that there is, if we were to imagine a plateau with steep drop-offs and the cross in the center of that, that's actually how we see it. It's We're all equal at the foot of the cross as long as dot, dot, dot. 
Because even like the masculinity efforts for white men did not apply to black men because white men could be in the last 30 or 40 years, horribly violent, oppressive, could have MMA events to help spread the gospel, could do all kinds of – like go to shooting ranges and have these like violent t-shirts. But then if black men were to do that, that would – right? That would be criminalized so heavily and penalized so heavily. And so I think that there are ways that – Whiteness establishes a dominant norm of what it means to be equal, and it is within a homogenous space, and it is always individualistic and interpersonal. And so it's like, okay, if a black man I know does something, sure, they're equal at the foot of the cross. But if a whole group of black people will use a Christian stereotype in a cultural stereotype, like in the south side of Chicago, are killing people and black-on-black crime is worse than any other crime – then those people are no longer equal because they need to get their lives together to be more like us. And so people are only equal insofar as they are like us. And the thing that I think plays out similarly in a problematic way is that I've watched a lot of Christians over the last few years dismiss people's humanity or their need for any kind of equity by describing people as not being Christian. And people can self-identify as Christian and that doesn't matter. But if white evangelicals do not consider people to be Christian or family, there is an exclusion of who gets to be at the foot of the cross together because it's a family space and it's like fenced off and everyone else has to crawl in or be drug and biased through our evangelism. And if they aren't Christian in the same way that quote unquote, we are Christian, then it does, the sin is sin doesn't apply. Mm. And so I think racially, when we center whiteness and when we center the values of white supremacy, we create really an entrance exam for like a behavioral and theological and emotional entrance ex- entrance exam for being at that foot of the equal cross. And, yeah. What would you say is that what is the entrance exam? What's on that test? I mean, an individualistic gospel, praying a prayer of Jesus is my personal Lord and Savior, worshiping and praying in ways that look white. It's adhering to social, political, and religious hierarchy. So I think it's a lot of assimilating into that Hmm. sort of subculture that says, okay, well, now we all get to be here. And so I think that the entrance exams are not – they're not really about Jesus. They're just about how well do you fit into the homogenous norms that we've created and any way in which you twist that or move from that – puts you at an arm's distance or an increasing distance from that center. And thinking about that idea of like, you're welcome here. Like, what does that mean? (laughs) You're just laughing as I say that. I mean, it means we don't want to look bad for saying you're not welcome here. Mm -hmm. That's all that means. Mm -hmm. It means we don't want to look like shitty people or we don't want to be put on public blast for having exclusive theology or practices. Mm -hmm. My organization has done that. Every church I've ever been in has done that in some way, except for the one that I'm a part of right now, Mm -hmm. has said like, oh, well, we love everybody, but – and then we put caveats on what it means to love everyone. I think the word welcoming in Christian space is dog whistle for you're not actually welcome here. Like I know that for me in churches that I had been in before, but they'd be like homosexuality is a sin, but we welcome people. So it's like, oh, look how good we are that even though we believe this thing – we're welcoming to those people in this place. Mm-hmm. And so I think that people who often say things around everyone being welcome actually feel very good about themselves for being welcoming. And it mostly reveals that the theology that they're adhering to has created so much distance between themselves and that people group or that person that they feel really good when they do basic, as you said, hospitality or 
even micro messaging. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. You mentioned earlier that uh, you don't use the word sin very much with this, you know, systemic lens that you hold. How would you describe sin? Well, I mean, Dr. Randy Woodley in his book with Bo Sanders, uh, Decolonizing Evangelicalism, just redefines sin as a mistake. So, And I think that that's maybe more generous than I'm at right now because I think he's a better person than I am. But I think that sin is anything that separates us or causes fracturing between ourselves and other humans, ourselves and the earth, ourselves and the divine. But I think because sin is always associated or very often associated with hell or with consequence or with punishment, it doesn't actually give us space to move away from that thing because we just start to panic. So mm. I'm like, oh, well, well, maybe it is – maybe we've been taught wrong about how to care for ourselves and how to care for our families and our friends and our communities and our countries. And if that's the case, we've made a mistake. Like we we did something that was wrong, that was unhelpful, mm. and we can own that mistake mm-hmm. and we can do something about it. Mm-hmm. And so I think when we – move that into the systemic, we can say, and I don't want to, I think the word, the reason the word mistake is, is hard for me is that I'm like, okay, intergenerational racism is not a mistake. That is a mm-hmm. system of, of violence. And, mm-hmm. but I think that we can do the same thing that we would do with a mistake, which is to acknowledge that thing, mm-hmm. dismantle the ways in which like the path that got us to that mistake and choose a different way. And so I think systemically, if we think about sin as less of an abstracted thing, that's like a spiritual reality up there in the cosmos and more of a thing that we all participate in, whether individually or collectively, we can actually address it rather than just excusing it or dismissing it like we've been talking about. Hmm. Yeah. And it makes it so that we seek to punish ourselves or be punished by others so as not to be punished by God. Like we feel like if we do enough to ourselves mm. or if we think God will somehow love us again. And I, I've seen this happen a lot as a campus minister where the, the story I always tell is that I had a student come up to me. She was a first year student when I was working at a college and she asked me to meet up with her and she was clearly distraught. And I was like, oh my God, what happened? She's just weeping, like crying and crying and crying. And she's like, I got drunk and I made out with someone at a party. And I was like, oh, that's what happened? And she kept telling me like how bad it was, how bad it was, how bad it was. And I was like, were you coerced? And she was like, no, no, no. I just feel so bad. I feel so bad. And I was like, I don't actually know what you want from me Hmm. because what I think that it seems like you want is for me to tell you the same message that you're telling yourself, Hmm. that you are so bad and that like God needs something from you or that like God is ashamed of you. But I don't need to tell you that. One, because you already clearly have told yourself that message and two, because I don't think that this is that deep. Like, I think that if you feel remorse, great. You feel remorse. And if you don't, okay, like talk to Jesus about that. Like you can engage with that in a different way. But you harming yourself mentally and then asking me as a pastor in your life to do the same thing tells me what you believe about God. Mm. When I don't really think that Jesus cares that you made out with a boy at party. <laughs> and you're probably going to do it again. Mm-hmm. And by like your definition of things, you'll probably do much quote unquote worse. And so I was just like, oh, this is the theology that we've given people and that we've subscribed to mm-hmm. that tells mm-hmm. us that God will not love us unless we hate ourselves enough. Mm-hmm. And you do that and then you slap a he is greater than I sticker mm-hmm. on your – put your – quote for my space as I must decrease, he must increase. And you have really rounded out that theological practice. <laughs> mm-hmm. Exactly. Well, thanks so much for taking some time to talk about Emery and talking about systemic views of sin and all the things. <laughs> 
it's fun for me because I don't get to nerd out about this kind of thing that uh-huh. often. So yeah, subculture great. still lives deep in me somewhere, yeah. and uh, Emery is one of those ways. Yeah. This has been an episode of the Prophetic Imagination Station podcast. You can follow us on Twitter or Instagram, where DL is often talking about weird bits of Christian media. Find us on the web as well. Also, we love getting emails from listeners. You can find all the links to those in the description of this episode. You can support the show on Patreon and get monthly extra episodes on evangelical culture for as little as $1.50 a month. We've talked about things like Brio Magazine, WoW 1999, and a lot of other throwbacks to evangelical culture. Deal's book, Myth of the American Dream, is available anywhere you get your books. And lastly, artwork for this season was designed by Zach Bard and theme music by Forrest Johnson. Thanks for listening. <laughs>